0: Welcome back to the Anglo-Boer War podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This week, it's episode 101 and the final week of August 1901. We'll also hear about the Dandy Fifth and Denise Reitz. And it's also time to ride back with General Christian de Wet as he sums up the blockhouses and meets the English Special Forces. Reitz has fallen in with this little band, as he calls them, most unfortunately would die, tragically. They were the dandy fifth. There were nine in number and led by Jack Boreas, who was a short, thick-set man of 28 from Pochestrum. More about this in a while. We must stand back and take a look at what was happening across the battlefields at this time. For most of South Africa, the winter period was a time of stagnation, but significant developments were taking place. Remember how General Jan Smuts was already riding south towards the Cape Colony border and was planning an invasion with a crack squad of Boers. His plan was simple, destabilize the colony and convince the Cape Afrikaners to rise up and join the two Boer states of the Transvaal and the Free State in their long war against the British. In the Free State, while drives, columns and patrols continued across the desolate plains, a lightning raid on General Herzog's commando, logged in the southwest of the territory on the 25th of August, indicated new methods. The British were finally going Boer in their tactics. After the start of the guerrilla campaign in late 1900, the British continued concentrating their forces around the logistic centres like railway lines and towns. They also preferred moving during the day, and the Boers had taken to sniping at these large formations, but never really facing them, then riding away and resting before continuing the skirmishes the next day. In the eastern Transvaal, Boer tactics had been successful in attacking the British during the night. Now, things were changing in the Free State, much to the chagrin and frustration of leaders like General Christian de Wet, who'd figured out long ago how to fight this war of attrition against the British Empire. Lord Kitchener, the commander-in-chief in South Africa, now ordered that each large column which moved through the felt must pick the most daring and skilled men on horseback to operate as special units. These were lightly equipped, but proactive soldiers, similar to the Boers. They could spend days in the felt, living on next to nothing, and sleeping in short bursts, but could pop up anywhere within a 50-mile radius of the columns and possibly catch the Boers unprepared. Kitchener went further. He set up special mobile columns in August 1901, which worked along a logic that could be called Special Force Raids, rather than a stolid, slow march across the felt. The drives, as they were known, were cooperative and therefore slow. Each section would have to move in relation to the other. The raiders, though, were different. They'd work on their own schedule largely, and the Boers found these units very difficult to read and even more difficult to fight. After all, they were using their own tactics. The units were able to dash about the felt completely autonomously, and as usual, Their exploits became household stories back in England after a period of frustration for the British propaganda machine. Remington's guides, Benson, Garrett and St. John Dartnell, were the new heroes in the British pantheon. In the Free State, for example, the Remington's guides, or Remington Tigers, as they were called, were feared by the Boer commandos, as these men were made up of locals and colonials who were irregular troops and were excellent horsemen and marksmen. It was a small unit only 150 men but it was extremely successful in South Africa Major Remington tirelessly raided the Lindley Haalbron area of the Free State hunting general Christian de Wet and president Steyn until Remington left the war zone in January 1901 The 43-year-old was the archetypal special forces officer of a later period in many ways He had distinguished himself in Natal after being sent out at the start of the war in 1899 to organize scouts for the British troops there he was ex-cavalry with a long face and forehead. He looked like one of his horses. Brandishing what historian Rain Kruger calls a cheerful twirling moustache, this was one of the new breed of soldier forged by the British Army, but honed to a fine edge by the Anglo-Boer War on the felt. He passed on his newfound knowledge to Major Frederick Damont, his second in command, but the unit retained the name Remington's Tigers. That was after the leopard skin hat bands they wore on their slouch hats. But by this stage of the war, late August 1901, the Tigers were known as something else, the Night Cats. As I've explained, the crack British units were now moving with much more stealth and often during the night, and Remingtons were taking advantage of the darkness, just like the Boers. Each man in this unit was obliged to speak Afrikaans and at least one indigenous African language the very core of a special force unit operating in enemy territory. Most spoke multiple African languages, as well as Afrikaans, which itself is pretty much regarded as African as a language. They were armed with carbines and pistols, very seldom carrying artillery or receiving conventional support. An unconventional unit in the middle of a guerrilla war. Some of these members went on in the Great War of 1914-18 to distinguish themselves Lieutenant Colonel George Morris, for example, who was the first commanding officer to lead an Irish Guards Battalion into battle, but was killed during the retreat from Mons in France in September 1914. Then how about Sergeant Norman Hastings, who died of his wounds after the attack on Chunuk Bear in Gallipoli in August 1915? He was unusual in that he was actually a New Zealander, whereas most members of the unit were led by English regular officers, but were colonials. From South Africa. It was these men who doggedly pursued Boer commandos around the Free State. While they roved, the Free State felt Lord Milner, the British High Commissioner in the Cape Colony, had also suggested to Kitchener that the blockhouses, which had been built between Cape Town and Pretoria, be extended west of Johannesburg and Pretoria. This is where General Kurs de la Rey had been causing mayhem with his constant attacks on places like Rustenburg and Muffet Gang. Blockhouses were successful in curtailing Boer movement, working both as well-armed points which could fire on commandos trying to cross the region, but also as communication zones. Their messages would travel in a few minutes from outlying areas to Pretoria when the telegraph line was cut, as they were in each other's line of sight. These blockhouses started in the imposing Magalisburg Mountains west of Pretoria, plunged south-eastly towards the Waal River, and ended at the free-state town of Kroonstad on the central railway line. This improved security around Pretoria and Johannesburg, but didn't stop internal spying. In the Transvaal, intelligence services had been extremely busy, and by late August, they swooped on Boer sympathisers and spies living in both Johannesburg and Pretoria. More than 50 men and women were arrested and accused of being involved in a massive Boer spy ring. Most were Boers who had sworn an oath of neutrality, and some had even been employed in the offices under the British. I'll return to this story in late September, particularly the tale of Bruxma, who was an ex-public prosecutor in the Kruger government before the war. He faced the charge of high treason, for which the punishment was death by firing squad. But more about him in a future podcast. Meanwhile, General Christian de Wet was circling the blockhouses in the Free State, when at about this period he became aware of the special British units who were operating at night and employing Boer tactics and he was not pleased. The English began to make night attacks upon us, and these night attacks grew more and more frequent during the last period of the war, he wrote in his book Three Years' War. But they would never have thought of them at all if had not been instructed in them by the National Scouts, our own flesh and blood. He was raging about the Boer Turncoat unit called the National Scouts, but he was wrong. It wasn't just because the Scouts had instituted these raids. The natural progression of the war implied that special units were needed in a time of guerrilla warfare. Still, you can understand Devet's anger. These tactics were not always successful, but most often were. On too many occasions they managed to surprise troops of burghers on their camping places. And having captured those who could not run away, they left the dead and wounded on the ground. You see, the bitter phase of the war was underway. At least the vet recognized the serious threat to his men's safety posed by these special units and how they were operating. We soon discovered that these night attacks were the most difficult of the enemy's tactics with which we had to deal. He tried to make light of the raids, however they were working. Sometimes the burghers, surprised by a sudden visit from the English at such an unconventional hour, found it necessary to run away at once as fast as their legs would carry them, so that they often arrived at the nearest camp without their hats. Indeed, a series of these attacks produced such a panic among our men that I have known a boor lose not only his hat, but also his head. De Vett was even more incensed when one of these forces caught him out at night as he prepared for an attack. For once, the canny Boer general was outflanked, his scouts outmanoeuvred, his men outfought. Worse, one of his sons was shot and wounded. It all happened like this. In the end of August 1901, General de Wet heard about an English force marching from Bethlehem in the eastern Free State to Reitz, about 30 miles away. Excellent, he thought. Time for an attack. What drove him into a frenzy later was discovering that the English force was being guided by the son of one of the Free State Members of Parliament. He does not name this person, just mentions that before the war, this very same Member of Parliament helped fan the flames of war, and claimed then he would give every last drop of his blood for his country. De Witt notes bitterly that by his own blood he meant his son. This English unit captured a number of burghers in Reitz, and De Witt believes They were on the hunt for both him and President Steyn. The vet was on a farm west of Reitz, and after some discussion, decided not to call the men out from Heilbronn, Bethlehem, Frieda, and Harry Smith. It would take them more than a day to reach him. Instead, he summoned commandos from Paris, which is a tiny town just inside the Free State border from the Transvaal. Around 70 men joined him as he planned an attack on the English. There were around 500 English in the column that arrived in the Reitz, so the vet thought, they would then retreat back to Bethlehem so he could deliver a flank attack in the early morning. Unfortunately for him, that is exactly what the English thought he would do. The 70 then rode through the afternoon to within the short distance of the town of Rates. While the majority rested, he sent scouts to ascertain what the English were doing. and They returned at about 10 at night, saying the unit appeared to be withdrawing, but towards Harrysmith, which was in a north-eastly direction, rather than towards Bethlehem. Still, they would travel on the Bethlehem Road for some time before turning east, so the vet planned to lay low beyond this point on the Harismith Road in a dip. When the English column appeared over the rise in the early morning, he'd open fire on them, then ride away in a classic Boer ambush. But my scouts had blundered. The English were not going to Harrysmith after all. The Boers literally stumbled onto the English, who were riding along at night quietly only a short distance from De Wet's men. The tables had turned. The English were tracking the Boers so silently that they had no idea that this raiding party of special soldiers was only two hundred paces away. It was around midnight, and suddenly the British opened fire on him. What a shock for the experienced Boer commander. He yelled, Charge Burgers! They all heard me, but they did not all obey, he admits. But 50 of the most valiant of them galloped straight at the enemy. The rest fled, he writes in disgust. It was a short, fierce firefight. Six of his men were wounded. Fortunately, their wounds were slight, but the most severe being that of my son, Isaac, who had been shot through the leg below the knee. It wasn't over. Up the road, General Vessel Vessels arrived with another 20 men, and they decided to attack the British once more. But the raiders were moving too fast for the Boers. This kind of thing had not happened to De Vett before, that his enemy moved quicker than he did. And of course, he blamed their sprightly activity on the Boer turncoats in the English midst. That obscured the fact that his enemy had learnt the ways of the felt. The British fought off the second attack with ease, using artillery and Maxim machine guns. De Vett retreated and licked his wounds. About 100 miles away to the southwest, Denise Reitz and his little band of would-be Cape invaders had gathered at a tiny free-state town called Bethel, not to be confused with the eastern Transvaal town. If you remember previously, he had tried to convince members of General Herzog's force camped close to the Cape border to join their grand mission to invade the Cape colony. They'd all refused, and he and his nine new friends were disconsolate. As I've said, Jack Boreas of Poterstrom led the band of Transvaalers, who, besides him, were all under the age of 20. They had all been taken with the idea of freelancing it into the Cape Colony, he wrote. Remember, they'd named themselves the Rake Section or Rich Section, but one of their members translated it as the Dandy Fifth. This was a huge joke for the men, as they were all dressed in rags, their clothes were tattered. Once more, Danais and his nine comrades rode out in late August deciding they'd leave Herzog and head east towards the Basutoland border with Commandant George Brunt. That Commandant had spent some time conferring with Herzog on military matters and was now heading back to the Caledon River where there was a safer crossing into the Cape Colony. Unlike his previous crossing close to a blockhouse, this time he was with a unit that knew every enemy position. Although there was a good deal of firing from blockhouses on either side of us as we went through, he said. The railway line divided the territory in more ways than one. To the west of the line lay the Great Plains, while to the east the country is more mountainous as you approach the Basutuland border. It was a sobering journey. Most of the livestock lay clubbed to death around the burnt farmhouses, and there was no signs of the civilian population, for those who had escaped capture were hiding in the caves and gorges. After another day's journey, They found large groups of wild horses, which were fairly common between what he called Sikoniela's Peak and Ilansberg in rough country. We were able to corral sufficient horses to give each of the rake section two fresh mounts, my own share being spirited mares, a brown and a roan, he says. They broke these in over two days, for the animals we had been riding thus far were in a wretched condition. To these we gave their freedom. Reitz was emotional as he bid farewell to the Shetland pony which had wandered into his camp so many weeks before. It was pleasant to see them trotting up the mountainside to a well-earned rest, my little Shetland pony kicking up his heels and winning joyously at their head. It was most fortunate for the dandy fifth, aka a rake section, that they would found new horses because they were about to be astonished For the next morning, as they admired their new mounts, they spotted a dust cloud. A large column of horsemen appeared over the shoulder of a nearby hill. By their formation and manner of riding, we knew them to be Boers. but there was no commander of that size around here, Red said. An hour later, an astonished rake section cast their gaze on one of the most famous Transvaal generals, and in the years to come, one of the most famous South Africans. General Jan Smuts had arrived to take the war into the Cape Colony. So, as they join forces, that story is for next week. Please rate the podcast on iTunes and head off to the website abwarpodcast.com where we have some photos and stories. You can email me through the site. And also, just quickly, a great thank you to Martin and Andrew, the wonderful hosts of History by Hollywood podcast. We spent a few hours on Saturday discussing the movie Breaker Morant, And that podcast is already up on iTunes. Search for History by Hollywood. Thanks so much to Martin and Andrew, two incredibly knowledgeable podcasters who analyzed the 1980s movie Breaker Marant. I learned a huge amount from these two talented presenters and sincerely suggest that you take a listen to these series. It's really wonderful. So that's all for this week. Until we meet again, goodbye. My God the Langs val,